You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. What are the odds? How many times in your life have you found yourself saying or thinking, what are the odds? Things happen in our lives that we may call coincidental, and for many are brushed off as so. What if we looked at these coincidences differently? What if we looked at them as possibilities? Possibilities that something greater than us is trying to connect us. Carl Jung describes the phenomenon as synchronicity or meaningful coincidences. What if we saw them as moments that tell us we are not alone? The dark side of the question, what are the odds, is when tragedy strikes outside the assumed expectations of life. Over 10 years ago now, my husband drowned in the lake at our cabin. We had been married just two months. His funeral was held on the day he and I planned a wedding reception for many of our friends and colleagues. I remember thinking to myself, what are the odds? When one experiences trauma, which comes in all forms, the odds of bad things happening increases in the mind exponentially. This is the essence of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. I now work as a therapist specializing in trauma, and what I have come to know in doing this work is that my experience with trauma has been a tragedy and a gift. This is a paradox. It's difficult to hold those two words in the same space. Yet we must, because this is the world we live in, What if, instead of expecting being hurt around every corner, people began imagining the possibility that synchronistic events may be around every corner? My spiritual teacher, dear friend and colleague, who heard my story said to me, if you are someone whom the world could send the worst possible experience, then doesn't it stand to reason that that same world could see you as someone to send the best possible experience? His words stuck with me. I began to imagine the possibility. I believe that suffering is, at times, the path we need in order to see ourselves as a connection to something bigger. We can sense the possibility of this something bigger through others and within ourselves. Isolation and disconnection is suffering. I see this as spiritual suffering, that is, a disconnection from our soul, from who we are and are meant to be. I imagine Coltrane did as well. Coltrane had struggled with heroin addiction and alcoholism for many years. In 1957, he had what he calls a spiritual awakening. He stated that this awakening led him to a richer, fuller, more productive life. He said that, at that time in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. Coltrane experienced what it means to start right in the midst of life. He asked the universe to help him manifest his life purpose so that others could find connection through it. Last week, my six-year-old son Joey and I were in the kitchen together. Out of the blue, he said to me, Mommy, if Donald Trump is the worst person in the world, this gives you an idea of the conversations we have in our household. (laughs) He said, if Donald Trump is the worst person in the world, isn't it possible that he could become the best person in the world? I was stunned. 
My instincts wanted to talk about the difference between possibility and probability. <laughs> but I realized that he was telling me the exact thing that I heard from my spiritual teacher. If the worst is possible, isn't the best? Come, let us worship. Have you ever loved and loathed a miracle at the same time? Have you ever felt connected to some part of creation and at the same time completely disconnected from another part of creation? How is it possible to both love and loathe a miracle, to be connected and disconnected in the same moment, to have the best and the worst experiences of your life so closely tied together? In a conversation earlier this week, a friend who gave me permission to share this story mentioned that he's been watching Call the Midwife. And as a, clearly there's some fans of the show out here. And as a result of watching this, I guess the first three episodes are okay, and now he's just like, he's into it. As a result of this watching, he's feeling this renewed and profound sense of gratitude to his mother for her pregnancy with him, for labor and delivery, all that she did to bring him into the world. In part, because of this show, he is connected anew to the profound miracle of his birth and what his mother went through so he could draw his first breath. And at the same time, his weekly phone calls with his mother are problematic and sometimes downright awful and challenging and painful because of old, hurtful patterns and habits that she can't seem to change. What does it mean to love and loathe a miracle? I've been rolling this idea around in my head, loving and loathing a miracle, and it makes me think about some of the stories I've heard from people of color at First Universalist about their experience here. First and foremost, I've almost always hear first, the first thing is this deep love for Unitarian Universalism, for our theology, for our principles. Underneath this love is a sentiment, a sense that it is a miracle that a church and a faith community such as this exists. That you don't have to believe in the literal truth of the Bible to be here. That in this faith community, science is real, personal experience matters, and there is wisdom to be found in many traditions and places. Actually, I think that experience probably transcends just the experience of people of color. That is an experience I hear from many of you as you worship with us and sort of remark, this is amazing. I didn't know there was a legit faith like this one. <laughs> Amen. We love it. And it is remarkable. If you grew up in a household or in a faith community where there was doctrine and creedal statements and a recitation of something that just rubbed you and rubbed you the wrong way as you lived with your life experience, coming into this place can feel like a breath of fresh air. And at the same time, for people of color, amidst that love for this place and for this faith, I think there's also this kind of resentment, a sort of loathing, if you will, because this is, if we're honest, a historically and culturally white institution. And all of that residue is still here, even as we seek to transform ourselves to become a racially just community. So in other words, the assumptions that we all enter church with or come into worship with or move into a small group with, the assumptions that we're all coming at this from basically the same place, from the same context, from the same histories, when in actuality, our experiences of school, 
for a person of color, or work, or moving through the world, or dating, or creating and sustaining community, well, those are very different experiences. And so the assumptions that are made can be painful. It creates a kind of loathing, resentment, when the same biases and structures outside of this church are present here as well. That's a piece of what I hear from some people of color. It is messy, loving, and loathing a miracle. And isn't parenting, and I'm hesitant to go here, isn't parenting a place where loving and loathing swirl together? <laughs> As parents, we love our children deeply, immeasurably, beyond words, we would, we would die for them. And aren't there moments or days or seasons where we really dislike our kids, right? Where we can't stand them or ourselves as parents. There's a kind of loathing that exists there because of the mess or the snot or the dock backness or whatever it is. It doesn't eliminate the love. And I'm not saying this is a permanent condition of parenting, but it's there and it's real, at least for me. And I really appreciate the laughter because I was like, am I the only one? <laughs> Did I just out myself as the one inadequate parent in this space? So I'm not alone in the love and the loathing that those of us who are parents can feel at times. Our children, with all of their struggles and all of their strengths, they delight us and surprise us with their best, and they freak us out and horrify us with their worst. <laughs> that is true. Oh, this being human, this journey, this loving and loathing, a miracle, this mess of gratitude and resentment, the best and the worst dancing together. As the poet says, just the other day, a bomb killed 70 people in Pakistan and no one around me heard a sound. These days I find myself blaming Pangea for the sounds I cannot hear. I decry the continents for their careless drift. I detest the tectonic plates for their indifferent quake. I wake up in love with the ocean and fall asleep despising all it has put between us. I find myself loathing a miracle. Now in truth, I don't think the poet is saying anything new. He's saying an old truth in a new way. His underlying reflections about the human condition, about ways that we see ourselves, we see our community, our tribe, our ethnic group, or whatever it is, our people. The way we see ourselves, maybe our people, as not connected to others, as a sort of separate continent from, from their continent. That isn't new. That is alive right now in this moment in countless ways. One small example of this is the Native American encampment camp tent setup that is just formed at Hiawatha and Franklin. This encampment is not disconnected from us. It is not disconnected from the fact that we are on Dakota land. It is not disconnected from the history of westward expansion and broken treaties and land theft and genocide. It is not disconnected from Indian boarding schools designed to destroy language and culture and identity. Generational trauma is real, and there are reasons that so many Native Americans are on the street and struggling. And there are many who are succeeding despite. I'm scratching the surface of the deeper reality and the connections behind this camp, but that history is not the lead in the story. 
The history of this country is not the lead in that story. Instead, it's 300 homeless people that need to find a place to, to be safe and warm as winter comes. It's as if there is an ocean behind the reality and then what's actually in the news. This forgetfulness, this inability to see how we are connected to one another and to the whole, it is a thread that runs through many religious texts, this prompt to say, don't forget, remember, there's actually connectedness here. The Hebrew and Christian stories remind us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to welcome the stranger, to welcome the foreigner into our midst, to welcome the one who is different from us, to remember that we ourselves were once strangers, unknown to others. And the religious mystics of the world, they constantly lift up from all traditions the deep oneness of existence, the Pangea reality, if you will, the oneness of our existence. Even though the physical continents have drifted, there is a oneness to our existence. And friends, when we forget this underlying relatedness, and we all do at times, when we forget, the results are devastating and horrific. In his book, A World Without Humans, Alan Weissman writes, the, hominoid, the, hom, excuse me, the hominid fossils we have discovered in Africa, in this crescent that runs south from Ethiopia and parallels Africa's eastern shore, those fossils have confirmed beyond much doubt that we are all Africans. He continues, the dust we breathe here, and he's in Ethiopia when he write, is writing this, the dust we breathe here in Ethiopia, blown by zephyr winds, contains calcified specks of the very DNA we carry. From this place in Africa, humans radiated across continents and around a planet. Eventually, coming full circle, we returned to Africa so estranged from our origins that we enslaved blood cousins who stayed behind to maintain our birthright. So estranged from our origins that we enslaved blood cousins who stayed behind to maintain our birthright. So estranged from the people of this land here that we killed them and stole their land and then blamed them for their poverty and homelessness and inability to succeed. It breaks my heart the things I do, the things we do when we are estranged from ourselves, estranged from our communities, estranged from the spirit of life. And despite centuries of religious teachers telling us of our oneness, Various cultural practices and beliefs distort and continue to distort that underlying truth. You know these beliefs, beliefs that men somehow are still smarter and more superior and better able to govern than women. I hope that really flips its head this November. Because man, I think if you put some people besides men, and I'm not dishing, dashing, thrashing, trashing men, I'm just saying if you put some people, we kind of know how it works when there's a bunch of men in charge. So let's try something else this November, some people of color, some women, let's see what that looks like. But that distorted belief is still there. And the distorted belief that somehow white-skinned people are superior to indigenous people or brown-skinned people or black-skinned people, those stories and beliefs distort the fundamental reality. 
And what we know now without a doubt, what we really truly know now without a doubt, just in the last couple of decades, is that we emerged out of this beautiful, remarkable, incredible process of evolution, that we all came out of Africa, that we all draw this, that we all shared the same DNA and planet for the short time that we draw breath. What are the odds? What are the odds of that deep connectedness? And this is the miracle, the birth story that unites us in our divided country and world. That truth, that reality is where our hope can live. And it is this miracle, that reality of this deep underlying connectedness, this miracle of being alive and remembering those connections that animates all of what we do at this church. It is why Sunday after Sunday and whenever else we gather, we strive to create this embodied experience of Pangea, a sense of being part of the whole, of being welcomed, of seeing room for you in the pew, space for you as you come in late because your morning was hard or the kids were challenging. We create these opportunities to reconnect the disconnected parts of ourselves. We allow the shorelines of our lives to touch the shorelines of other lives. It is why we are committed to being a multicultural, multiracial church, because we are all related. And as we undo the practices of white supremacy thinking, we begin to see that relatedness even more clearly. This is one of the reasons why we're offering beloved conversations this fall, these small groups designed to help us learn and explore and delve into the role of race and ethnicity in individual and congregational lives. All of this is designed to help us create more love and less loathing of the miracle around us. Every circle ends with singing because song and music can cut across all that divides us, can reconnect what feels disconnected. John Coltrane knew this. He knew that a love supreme, a supreme love found in music and found in the world could reconnect us. He believed that music transcended ethnic divisions and was a common spiritual denominator. Music creates a space for more loving and less loathing. Our soul band knows this. Dang, you guys know that. Ruth knows this, and you know this. You know this in your body when you sing and when you receive music into your being, when we start to move and we can't help it, and we start to clap and then kind of find, wow, I do have a little bit of rhythm here. I'm into this now. This is good. There's something when we receive that music that connects us to the body and to the whole. So that's what we're doing here at this church. That's what you're doing and participating in at this church. We're doing it in worship, in our small groups, in our justice efforts. We are seeking to reconnect to the whole through listening, through singing, through prayer, through silence. We come together to awaken in ourselves Pangea consciousness, to remember it's one planet, one shared DNA, one shared destiny that connects us and that will ultimately save us. We come together with tears. We come together with struggle and joy and gratitude. We come together with all of these different pieces of ourselves, feeling adrift, hoping to weave them back into some kind of life-giving whole. We come together hoping to create more love and less loathing. May it be so. 
and amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.